You may be seated. Would you turn to the Lord with me in prayer? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, unimpeachably glorious Lord Jesus Christ, powerful, present, regenerating Holy Spirit, we bow before your triune glory and long that not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Seize for yourself all credit and honor and glory in our hearts and in this city and on the earth. Let no glory go to any other created beings, but all to the Creator, to whom belongs all praise and honor and dominion forever. You are enthroned in the heavens, and you do all that you please. Nothing thwarts your will. So come by the manifest presence of your Spirit and magnify Jesus Christ once again. How well fed we have been this day. For the sake of your name, continue to strengthen us by your word and by the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. I am indeed very grateful to be invited to be a part of this conference. Thank you all for being willing to dig into the Word of God with me. It's my happy assignment to proclaim the doctrine of irresistible grace, by which I mean that since depravity is total in its depth in our hearts, that therefore it requires God's sovereign work to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. If total depravity is true, if unconditional election is true, if definite atonement is true, then irresistible grace is the most obvious truth that one could imagine. But it's not because it fits a system that I hold to irresistible grace. It's because it is unquestionably taught in Holy Scripture. By the doctrine of irresistible grace, I do not mean that grace isn't resisted. It is resisted. It's resisted everywhere. It's being resisted in my heart right now, probably. It's probably being resisted in this room. It's certainly being resisted around the world. Every time God, by grace, extends the gospel of the good news of His Son, Jesus Christ, to someone and they turn from it in unbelief, grace is being resisted. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 57, there's a record of how God was constantly calling the people of Israel back to Himself and how they were stiff-necked and rebellious and disobedient. And then He says in Isaiah 57, verse 18, But I will heal them. That's irresistible grace moving in on hearts that are so constantly resisting his grace. Stephen is preaching before he gets bludgeoned to death with stones. And he says to the people who are about to pick up the stones and beat him to death with stones, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The whole history of the Israelite people is a saga of resisting God's grace. So, Romans 10.21, 
Paul writes in God's voice is, all day long, I hold my hands out to a disobedient and contrary people. Unbelief in the face of the gospel is resisting God's grace and grieves the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 makes that so plain. God overcomes human sinful resistance to grant the ability for our eyes to be opened, to be awakened and granted faith. He does that for some. He does not do that for every single person. Irresistible grace means then that as soon as God chooses, he can overcome our resistance to his grace, and he does. So, oh, how we are debtors to grace. I hope you feel a massive debt that you owe to grace being here and caring one whit about these things is a massive debt that you owe to grace. I want to give you seven reasons why I believe in the doctrine of irresistible grace and not merely believe in it, but why I cherish it. Cherish it. Number one, faith and repentance are both gifts from God. Faith and repentance are both gifts from God. In the text that Pete read a minute ago, a little bit later on in John 6.65, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Father gives as a gift the faith to come to him. 2 Timothy 2.24 and 26, Paul's preaching. And listen to the interplay between human agency and the giving of repentance to come to Christ. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see the interplay between human preaching and the character of the preacher? Be not quarrelsome. Be a bondservant. Be kind. Be able to teach, patient when wronged, gently correcting those who are in opposition. And through the character and means of preachers, God will grant the gift of repentance. You could look at Acts 16.14. Lydia had it as a gift granted to her that her eyes were opened to perceive the gospel Paul was preaching to her. In Acts 11.18, God grants repentance to life, even to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. Romans 12.3 says that God grants Grace according to the gift of faith. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it so plain that faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift purchased by the cross. It does not represent what I bring to the cross. The cross affected and purchased and purchased for me the grace that I must have in order to come and see Christ for who he is, having my eyes opened. My first argument for why I not only believe but cherish irresistible grace is that faith and repentance are gifts from God. My second argument. The church is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. The church is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. If it's certain that God the Father gives to the Son as a reward for His work upon the cross, you and I, the church, then it is absolutely certain that His grace will overcome my resistance. 
I get that from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 7. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Jesus said to the Father. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. This is a profound, breathtaking, ineffable doctrine. At the cross, the Father is so pleased that his Son's blood purchased the church that he gives the church back to the Son as his divine inheritance. And Jesus the Son will have what the Father gave him. And as certain as the transaction is between the Father and the Son, so certain is the Father's overcoming of my resistance. That blows me away. There is transactions in the jet stream of divine interaction among the Trinity that guarantee the overcoming of my dark, depraved resistance to Christ. Is that not glorious? John Murray says, The constraints of the Father's grace in the hearts of men are concomitant with, or perhaps may be construed as a donation on the part of the Father to the Son. God the Father draws men, places holy constraints upon them, calls them into the fellowship of His Son, and presents them to Christ as trophies of the redemption Christ Himself has accomplished. Believers are a gift, a donation from the Father to the Son. The Son will have what the Father has eternally promised Him. We are then, as members of the church, a gift from the Father to the Son. We are to the Son an inheritance. Ask and I shall give you the nations for your inheritance. Psalm 2.8 Reason number three why I not only believe but cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace. Persons cannot come to Christ in faith unless God sovereignly draws them. John 6, 44. You heard Pete read this a few moments ago. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you remember why Jesus said that? He had just performed two massive public miracles. He'd fed the 5,000 Jews, and then he walked on water. And then there was a whole crowd of people who decided, we want Jesus to be our king because he's a phenomenal baker. We'll never be hungry. We'll have full stomachs all the time. We will make him our king. Jesus knows that, and it grieves him to the core. He said, none of you get it. I didn't come to spread a banquet. I came to be a banquet. I'm the bread of life. Do you remember when the Manna from heaven came down and Moses fed the people of Israel. I was the manna. I'm the bread of life. The Jews hated him for talking that way. It sounded blasphemous to them. They grumbled in verse 41 of John chapter 6. Which is a really thin word for conspiring together to find a way to kill him as quickly as they possibly could. Jesus explains why they're grumbling. Why are they bad-mouthing the bread of life? Why are they talking ill of the Son of God in the flesh? It's because nobody comes to him unless the Father is drawing him. You Pharisees who know the law backwards and forwards and have it memorized, God's not drawing you. That's why your heart is hard. God's not drawing you. Your grumbling against me is confirming all the Old Testament texts about some vessels for wrath. 
Someone might say, But doesn't Jesus go on in John chapter 12, verse 32, to say, And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself? What about that text? Isn't Jesus going to draw all persons to himself? Well, Jesus in John 12, 32, recorded by John, doesn't mean for a moment that the cross will draw everyone universally. Nobody believes that Jesus is teaching universalism there. So what's the division What's the demarcation and limitation of who is drawn? The answer is, from Jesus' own mouth, it's the Father drawing some, but not all. It's the Father overcoming the resistance inside Brent Nelson's heart. As hard as I live according to the darkness of my own flesh, he overcomes my heart's darkness. As certain as the Father will give me and all my brethren to the Son, so is his Overcoming of my resistance, certain. Someone may say, yes, the Holy Spirit does draw us to God. But we can still use our own free choice to resist or accept that drawing. And I say, without the work of effectual grace in our hearts, we will always use our free choice to resist that drawing. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but they are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, referring to Judas. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Every choice that we make apart from the enabling grace of God is a suicidal choice. Jesus explains his knowledge of those who would come, who would believe and who would not believe, referring to Judas, is the reason why some do not believe and some do believe. It is the drawing of the Father foundationally. Paul says it's the natural man who doesn't understand the spiritual things of Christ. Paul says that all of us don't obey and we're hostile to God's law. In fact, we can't obey it. The inability to come to God unless he draws us stands for me a solid, immovable, foundational truth for why I believe and cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace. I'm helped by John Murray again. He says, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility for a person to come to Christ apart from the Father's drawing. Likewise, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility for the person given by the Father to the Son not to come. Reason number four why I believe and cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace. God's effectual calling overcomes our resistance to the gospel. God's effectual calling overcomes our resistance to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 25 describes this broad general call that goes out when preachers herald the gospel in this room on the Lord's Day and in the church in which I serve on the Lord's Day and in the mouths of missionaries and across the globe through the internet and through radio and through television and through book publishing and all manner of other means. When the gospel goes out, there's a broad and general call. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks very specifically about the specific internal effectual call. He says, 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the broad call. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this specific effectual call is where God, by His Holy Spirit, speaks to the heart, and the heart, though fully dead and resistant to Christ, is awakened by the call. When I was 14 years old, I didn't want to go to church at all. I wanted to find every possible excuse I could not to go to church. My dad was uh, one of the leaders in the church we were part of at the time, and he was a prankster and a jokester. He found a wonderful way to help me get up early enough to get ready to go to church. He decided that he would come up into my room real quietly while I was still sleeping about 8 o'clock on the Sunday morning, and he would pour water on my face with this big old huge smile that I'd look up in blurry, watery, sleep-filled eyes and see smiling at me. It's Sunday. It's time to go to church. There was a certain power in the call. In John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus, surely with tears in his eyes for his good friend Lazarus who died and for his deliberate attempt to stay out of the community, even though his good friends, Lazarus' sisters, were begging him to come. He chose Jesus to stay away, heartbroken, knowing that his staying away would permit the death of his friend and beloved Lazarus. He comes to the community where Lazarus is buried and with effectual calling sovereign power in his voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the call enables its obedience. Lazarus comes out, rises from the dead, and his grave clothes are taken off. The poor man, he has to die twice. God's effectual calling creates and carries with it the power to accomplish what it commands. Reason number five why I believe and cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace. Regeneration enables us to see Christ. Regeneration enables us to see Christ. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born. Literally, that means he has been born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. We know very familiarly from John chapter 1 where Jesus or what John is teaching about the gospel and how the gospel comes. And he's very explicit to say we're not born of any human effort or means whatsoever. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. It must happen to you from outside of you. The Spirit blows and he moves and he's regenerating and he's granting new birth. Not to the people who are saying, oh, don't pass by me, come here. But to the people who are running away from the Holy Spirit and who by their own will don't want the Holy Spirit. Regeneration both precedes and enables 
saving faith that leads to new birth. Reason number six why I believe and cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace. The new covenant promises grace that overcomes our resistance. The new covenant promises grace that overcomes our resistance. You remember over and over in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29, for instance, where God is grieving over the sin of the people. Deuteronomy 29.2 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. So they were eyewitnesses to the great work. They were eyewitnesses to the walls of water in the Red Sea and to the dry land. They were eyewitnesses to the swallowing up and killing of Pharaoh. They were eyewitnesses to the plagues. They were eyewitnesses to all of that, and yet they didn't have a heart to see or hear or understand. God didn't give them that heart yet. What would God have to do? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. It's no benefit whatsoever to be born in the day when you were among the original people of Israel. There's no benefit whatsoever necessarily to go to the Holy Land. It's a mighty, external, supernatural, sovereign, gracious work of God to come in and pull out your heart of stone and give you a heart that sees Jesus. And that's the promise of Jeremiah 32. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Or Ezekiel 11. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them. That they will be my people and I shall be their God. No one ever sins by duty. They sin for the promise of delight. They sin with their heart. Nobody in the natural state ever comes to Christ by delight with all their heart. It requires an inbreaking of God's grace to give us a heart that delights not in sin, but in Christ. Reason number seven. No one ultimately resists God's will. No one ultimately resists God's will. I get that from the text that Steve read earlier today, and I was so glad that he read the first portion of it, Romans 9, 14. I want to pick it up at verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Do you hear what's behind the question of the interlocutor? They're asking, how can God find fault with me if he's wired me in such a way that all I can do is sin? If all I can do is do what's wrong, how can he possibly find fault in me? All my sin is God's fault. 
What the interlocutor doesn't seem to understand and what a natural fleshly person doesn't seem to understand who asks this question is that even if God is the sovereign one over all the universe, he has never and shall never be culpable for sin. He's not the author of sin. Our sin cannot be rolled onto him and his guilt owned for our activities. But in fact, God permits that human beings sin in all our own depravity. He ordains that there would be sin in the garden and that through our association with Adam, his death and guilt was imputed into us and we are thereby not only sinful, but sinners in committing the sin of our hearts. And we remain guilty and culpable. And the burden of guilt falls upon us because of our sin. When we sin, we sin with our hearts willfully, not out of duty, but out of delight. We delight in darkness. That's the resistance that grace must overcome. Paul's response to the interlocutor is verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Do you see, it goes right back to creation where we began with Ryan this morning. God is the creator. And as the creator, he owns all that he has created. And as the creator, he has the right to create For whatever purposes, he designs all of his creation. He has rights over his creation. All human beings, all persons, all places, all times, all matter, God has all sovereign rights over it. And he has the right to make out of the same lump of clay a vessel for wrath, a vessel for mercy, a vessel for for honor, and a vessel for dishonor. What if God, verse 22 goes on, Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul's logic is this. You can't question God if he made a pharaoh. And then caused Pharaoh's heart to remain hardened so that the people of Israel would escape and Pharaoh would chase them. And then God, through the very judgment and mercy of spreading the seas so that his people could walk across in dry land, he caused that very means of mercy to his people to crash down upon Pharaoh and to destroy him. And the implication there is not that Pharaoh just drowned and died physically. The implication is that Pharaoh died eternally. The question that Paul's asking the reader of Romans 9 is, does the God of the Bible have the right to create whatever he wills for his own purposes? In fact, explicitly Paul says, does the God of the Bible not have the right to create whatever he wills for the purpose of his own glory? God exists... In all righteousness, he is not a God of unrighteousness. He therefore does not set his eyes or affection on anything less than the most worthy object in existence, which is himself. 
He must, to be righteous, not commit idolatry by delighting in anything lower than the very highest thing, which is himself. He delights in his own glory, highest above all things, for he is the most worthy object of his own delight, highest above all things. It is right and righteous for God to say, I will create vessels of wrath, I will create vessels of mercy. I alone determine who is who. So the interlocutor that interfaces with Paul here, questioning the justice or the fairness of God to judge those who are sinning because they were created sinners, falls flat. The sinner remains guilty for all the sin that they commit, and God remains pure and righteous, having no guilt imputed to him whatsoever. He is pure and he is holy. Shocking, then, is the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we are told in the clearest of terms that the Son of God is made to be Sin, who knew no sin. For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father, in his eternal plan to give the church to his Son, first says, Holy, righteous Son, you must take on human flesh and have the sins of the world become you. So that when you endure the most exquisitely painful death imaginable, and when you endure the far worst ignominy, of me turning my face away from you, and all that we've shared for eternity past is withdrawn. You become the sin that my holy eyes cannot look upon. You bear and absorb in your flesh the wrath that is due to the entire church. We are made righteous. We become the righteousness of God because Christ bore the wrath of sin upon himself. Our great God, in all his holiness, says, I will not look upon sin and must turn my eyes away from Christ as he bears the sins of the world, the church. And then... I look back to him and I say, well done. I raise him from the dead, confirming the full accomplishment of the cross. And I lift him up and seat him at my right hand and say, take now these people, these persons, individuals whom I have created and whose resistance to my glory I have overcome by grace. Take them as an inheritance. All the nations, peoples from every tribe, tongue, people and nation will be gathered to worship you, you will be the firstborn among many brethren. These are the seven reasons. There are probably more. These are my seven reasons for why I believe in the great and precious, cherishable truth of irresistible grace. What effect should that have in your life? 
Three simple ones. First, never boast in any act of your faith. Never boast in any act of your faith. Never give the credit to your church or your pastor. Never give the credit to the authors you read. Never give the credit to your spiritual disciplines or to the family you grew up in or to the country you live in. Never give the credit to your education. Never give the credit to anything but to God. Let God be the one who fully receives all the praise and honor and glory in your life for any act of faith that you have or have ever experienced in your life. If there are graces that are evidence in your life, if anyone, your family members, your friends, or your church family can point to any graces in your life, it's all owing to the greatness and kindness of God in Christ. You and no other person on the planet can take credit for your faith. People who love the doctrine of irresistible grace should be the humblest people on the face of the earth. There never should be an issue over why Reformed people or Calvinistic people seem kind of arrogant over their doctrine. We lie about our doctrine when we're arrogant about our faith. Our whole behavior and our whole lifestyle and our whole tone and the way we carry ourselves lies about the fact that we are owing every grace in our lives to sovereign grace and to the goodness of God. Let the church of Jesus Christ who loves these things be more humble than we have ever been before so that our behavior does not lie about our doctrine. Second, Once we've been overwhelmed with the humility that there is no quality or virtue in me that causes God to choose me or to grace me or to overcome my resistances. And once we realize that by his good work in our lives, the more irresistible grace achieves his character traits in my life, the more humble I'll want to be. Simultaneously, there will rise a stronger, louder, bolder declaration of his glory in my life that is fearless and courageous, more so than I've ever been before. I don't have to worry about what other people think about me. I don't have to posture myself to get other people to treat me a certain way. I can be free and generous and childlike and unhindered in my praise. Because I am down as low as grace will bring me, I can also be exalted in the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ as high as his grace will bring me. If we are lovers of the doctrine of irresistible grace, we will not only be the most humble people on the face of the earth, we will be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. We will know that if God sent his son to overcome our greatest problem, which is our dark-hearted resistance to his grace, then will he not freely with us give us all things? Surely the cross then is our hope that no matter what you need when you leave out of here this Saturday afternoon, no matter what you face on the Lord's Day tomorrow, no matter what you face in the week ahead, no matter what issues you face in the rest of your life, if the cross is sufficient to meet your greatest need of Overcoming your resistance to Christ, surely it is enough to meet every smaller need. And in that you can rejoice. Third and finally, if this irresistible grace has begun to break down your resistances, that you could see Christ 
and believe in him and be born again. If you have seen the effectual call of God call you out of the tomb of deadness in Christ, deadness in the flesh to life in Christ, then that joyful praise that arises out of a truly humbled heart will translate itself into bold, unstoppable, sustained initiatives of mission. Bold, unstoppable, sustained initiatives of mission. I'll show you where I get this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, talking about the gospel, he has just restated the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. One of the most glorious statements of the gospel in the whole Bible. And then he said, I delivered to you this gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and then to more than 500. And then he talks about how he was last of all untimely born and calls himself the least of the apostles. I see that as the sovereign grace of God at work in Paul where he is not trying to proclaim himself, but he's humble. And he sees this then as an explanation for why he's engaging in this bold, sustained initiative of mission around the ancient Near East at this time. Then he says, verse 8, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was remade by sovereign grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This irresistible grace is not only at work in me, it's transformed me, Paul says. It's the most powerful, definitive fact in my life. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. How do you know, Paul? What would it look like for the grace of God not to be in vain for us who sit here in this conference this afternoon? How do we know? The grace of God toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. So if sovereign grace has overcome your resistances and is at work in your life, you're going to see great humility, real, genuine, authentic humility, break you down face to the carpet that you know nothing that you have ever done or could do is owing to yourself but all to God. Then it's going to awaken in you a joyful praise that lifts you Godward and you're going to be free and childlike and strong in your joyful praise to Him. And it's going to make you work harder than anyone else around you who has no such grace. I worked harder than any of them, Paul says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He doesn't lay his pillow, head on his pillow at the end of the day and say, they should all take a lesson from me. They need to work as hard as I do. I wish other people at the church worked as hard as I do. I wish the rest of my family worked as hard as I do. That's not the way Paul lays his head on the pillow at the end of the day. He lays his head on the pillow at the end of the day saying, everything I've been able to do today for you, God, was all by your grace. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing, John 15, 5. But through Christ, I can do all things because you strengthen me. Paul loved the way grace worked in him and made him work hard. Calvinists, reformed 
believing Christians who cherish the doctrine of irresistible grace should be zealously, supernaturally, graciously, perseveringly working on the earth for the sake of the gospel. If you look at the history of those of us throughout the history of the world who love the doctrine of irresistible grace, you will not just see a love for sound doctrine. You will see the most zealous missionary church building School building, hospital building, city building, country building, God's glory on the earth building people the world has ever known. And that's not virtue to them. It's all virtue to grace. We know Paul has his own preaching in mind because verse 11 says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Irresistible grace then ignites a gospel proclamation of mission in us. It doesn't allow grace to fall on us in vain, as if we're somehow cul-de-sacs of grace. Instead, if irresistible grace is at work in our lives, we'll become a conduit of grace. We'll, we'll pour it out. We can't help but pour it out. We can't help but dream new dreams and press into new lands and pray for darkened countries and seek lost to win to Christ. So ultimately, this grace that we've been talking about is a great and mighty triumph. I titled my talk, The Triumph of Grace Over the Rebellion of the Depraved Heart. It's a triumph of grace in my heart, in the church, and on the earth. I invite you to it. I call you to it. I want to pray for you now. Take these ideas, Lord, from your word and light them on fire in my heart and in the hearts of these precious people. Cause us to be amazed that you give us faith and repentance as a gift. Cause us to be amazed that there's a transaction between you, the Father, and the Son that occurred in which you gave us to him and that you certainly would not go to your Son empty-handed. Thank you so much that your effectual call calls us back to life from the dead. Thank you so much that the Old Testament pointed forward to this great effectual grace, this new heart in the new covenant. Thank you so much that all that you have done to cause us to submit to your grace was achieved so that our resistance was toppled and in our hearts you triumphed. I thank you so much for irresistible grace. I thank you for its work in my prone-to-wander heart, and I thank you for its work in the hearts of these precious people. I ask now that you would make us humble, filled with joy, and unremitting in our missionary zeal for the cause of Christ on the earth. I pray it all in his glorious name.